When you come in and you're new, you have to acknowledge that not everybody's going to be on board with your vision and that's got to be okay. But you do need to create an environment where the people who are on board with your vision can start to execute it and start to help you execute it. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Radhika Jones. She is the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, which is a Condé Nast publication that covers Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Washington, D.C., and Wall Street. Before joining the magazine in 2017, Radhika was the editorial director for books at The New York Times. She's also worked as a top editor at Time and The Paris Review. Not to mention, she's got a Ph.D. in English and comparative literature from Columbia. We're speaking to her just as the Vanity Fair Hollywood issue dropped and before the Academy Awards, when Vanity Fair hosts its annual Oscars party. Radhika, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we get into the conversation, we like to warm up with a lightning round so we can get to know you a little better. Quick questions, quick answers. You ready? Okay, I'm ready. Okay, what was your first job? It depends on where you date it, but I'm going to say my first job was selling t-shirts at the Newport Folk Festival. Worst job? I don't think I have a worst job. That is such an optimistic answer. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any hobbies? My latest hobby, my pandemic hobby is gardening, which I love. Oh, favorite Vanity Fair cover? Well, that would be like picking among my children, but I... I will go into the past and say that the Vanity Fair cover that made me most attuned to to what a magazine cover can do, the the kinds of conversations it can provoke, is the the famous Demi Moore cover of her pregnant in profile. I am currently expecting my second child, and I often think back to that cover, and I'm like, how did she do that? It's amazing. It still is amazing, which is which is a real testament to that cover. Last book you read? I. Just read The Queen's Gambit, actually, which I really liked. So if anyone has watched the series and not read the book, I recommend. That is me. So I might take you up on that. What is the most glamorous perk of being a magazine editor? Well, in my case, I think I have to say it's getting to host the Vanity Fair Oscar party. Any favorite or standout memories from that party? The last time we had the party in 2020. I had a really wonderful evening watching the Oscars and chatting with Michael Keaton, who was a fabulous dinner companion. So I feel like that was a very diplomatic way of saying, yes, I have so many answers to this question, but here's the one that I'm allowed to say. (laughs) Uh, No, no. I mean, I could go on and on, but that was just a very, that's a very, you know, we spend a lot of time sitting next to each other and watching the Oscars. And he was so fun. And the whole night is kind of like that. But because... The pandemic began so soon afterward that sort of stands out in my mind. What is the least glamorous part? Because I feel like people have a very glamorized depiction or not necessarily realistic depiction of of what your job entails. 
I will tell you the part that I find least glamorous personally, which is packing a suitcase to go on a work trip. Yes. And making sure that I have all of the things that I need for all of the various things that I will have to do when I get there. So that's what I always dread. But then once I get there, I'm very happy that I put the time in. What's the last TV show you binge watched? I watched And Just Like That. As did I. Having been around for the original and I am in the middle of binging Ozark. Who would play you in a movie? Goodness. Oh, I would have to leave that to the casting directors. Okay, let's get into learning more about you. So it was really interesting to read about your early career in journalism. You moved to Moscow to work for the Moscow Times. You eventually became a writer and at one point even a restaurant critic. When did you first decide you wanted to get into storytelling? Well, I was always a big reader. So I I feel like from the time I was young, Reading stories, fiction and nonfiction, seemed to me the way that I could naturally understand the world. And so I think it was sort of a natural move for me to find a way to help create and produce those kinds of stories. I'm not a novelist by nature. I love, love reading novels. It's my great joy, but I'm a terrible fiction writer, as I learned after some pathetic attempts. But that's okay. There's lots of wonderful novelists out there. And and my role, as I learned through some of my early work, was kind of find that sweet spot in journalism where you're able to tell the stories of the day, but also imbue them with the kind of power and illumination that you get from the classics. It's something that really motivates me because I I feel like at the end of the day, we're all just trying to understand the world that we live in and we can be entertained while we're doing that. And that's part of our mission at Vanity Fair. We can have moments of revelation. We can have moments of delight and horror and all the various places I work, starting with sort of straight journalism and arts criticism and restaurant criticism at the Moscow Times, you know, the through line I think is, well, here we are in the world for our appointed time. You know, what sense can we make of it? To me, it kind of all makes sense. I'm ultimately a person who reads and wants more to read. And now I get to be in the business of making more things to read. It's not surprising to me that you got your PhD. Hearing you talk about, you know, this intersection between academia and journalism, it it just makes sense in how you think. And you did that at the same time as you were juggling roles at different publications. What did you learn from being in a classroom and teaching that you took with you into a media career? There are so many things. And I I'm so glad you asked because I feel like people often can think of the academic setting as kind of, you know, they think of it as an ivory tower. It's not related to the real world, but I I learned most of my workday skills from being in seminar rooms and lecture rooms. And so a couple of them that come to mind, I had a wonderful professor, Rob Nixon. I took a seminar with him early in graduate school. And he had this terrific way of opening class, which is that, you know, we had reading that was assigned and he would go around the room and he asked everyone to make an observation or ask a question about the reading. And you were allowed to pass. So it wasn't like law school. There wasn't a lot of pressure on you, but the idea was that everybody should have something to say. We were in the room voluntarily. This was what we were pursuing. And somehow he, he was such a good listener that over the course of the two hours of the seminar, he would somehow manage to seamlessly integrate our questions and observations into his teaching all through this really effortless dialogue so that we felt heard. It was absolutely masterful. And I feel like 
he was running a meeting, you know, <laughs> like in the corporate world, that's called running a meeting, but doing it really, really well. <laughs> and so I, I often think of that. I think about teaching my first class and understanding that teaching, a lot of teaching, it's not just conveying information, it's holding a room, it's performance. You, you have to get people's attention and keep it. And sometimes you have to get the attention of college kids who would much rather be doing something else. So you really have to work for it. And that is also something that I've considered often through my career, where I wasn't always the loudest person in the room or the person who had a role of authority, but being in school helped me learn to make myself present and make myself heard when it was important to me. And so those are just a couple of things, but maybe one more, which is that in graduate school, you come together for coursework, but a lot of the work that you do is solo. When you're pursuing a PhD, part of the point is to specialize. So you have your project and, and the goal is that you're working on something that's totally unique, which means that you're alone. And that can be very thrilling because you feel like you are moving forward in the field, but it can also be lonely. And one of the things that I absolutely love about the work that I do now is that I have a team and we collaborate. And that is truly how I love to work and maybe why I ended up in magazines. It's so interesting hearing you talk about that because I never would have guessed that what you took from that experience was kind of this, how do you run a meeting, managing skills, but it does make sense. If you can get the attention of college kids, that says a lot. You know, we hear a lot of people who come from corporate jobs and they go into to teaching. I think you're the first person I've interviewed who has done the PhD into then media. Mm -hmm. What made you decide that you wanted to go that path? I was doing my PhD in New York City. So I was surrounded by media and I had had experience working in media. So I always kind of had a foot in that world. And I, I was, it was very alluring to me to work in places that were deadline oriented in graduate school, ultimately there are big deadlines like taking your oral exams and defending your dissertation and getting tenure and all of those things. But along the way, there's a lot of um, opportunity for slippage, shall we say. And there's something very concrete about the deadlines when you are publishing in particular. So I had gotten a little bit of a news metabolism from my work in Moscow. It was a super newsy time. I was living in Moscow in the 90s. It was a very newsy time. And so I had gotten that kind of adrenaline rush of following the news and being involved in shaping the news. And I, I never really got rid of that, you know? So in a way, I just, I chose the pace of the publishing life. At Vanity Fair, you took over from an editor who had been there for 25 years. He was a publishing icon, huge legacy. I remember what the rumor will was like when that search was going on. That was not an easy job to get and it also was not an easy job to step into. What was it like to take on a role where the public and the industry had such a specific understanding of what your job was based off of the person that last held it? You put that really well. You know, it... It had its challenges, but I, I took a lot of confidence from the fact that I had put forward a vision for Vanity Fair that I felt was true to the DNA of the magazine. I was a reader of Vanity Fair from way back. I felt that there was an opportunity to make it more forward-looking and more modern. And I just felt very confident, not only that I could do that, but that it would actually fill a space in the culture that I had felt was lacking, you know, as a reader. And so I just was trying to be very patient and dogged about getting my ducks in a row in order to do that. It doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, it can be a little frustrating when you have a vision in your head 
it takes a little while for everything to crystallize and get there. But I was patient and confident, and I had a lot of support from Anna Winter, who had hired me, and from David Remnick, who had been a mentor to me. And so I just kind of went for it day by day. The thing that was driving me was the sense that I wanted to refresh and reinvent the magazine because I felt that there would be a readership for it. And and I felt that we could do it with a lot of continuity with the past. It wasn't about breaking with the past um, or breaking with what Tina Brown had done, what Grayton Carter had done. It was about taking the core DNA of that project and applying my sensibility and the sensibility of our era. And I think that, you know, we've we've done it, which is exciting. We continue to do it. We've seen a lot of audience growth. The growth in our Gen Z audience in particular is exciting to me because I feel like we're bringing people into Vanity Fair and interpreting the world and the culture for them in a way that maybe wasn't happening before. So you come in, you have a vision, you hope that other people will share it and the proof is in the audience. And so when the audience grows, you feel like, okay, this is, you know, this is right. This was something that was welcome. So I'm assuming at some point on day one or week one, you have to introduce yourself to the team that's there and you lay out your vision for what this new era is going to look like. And now, of course, in my head, I'm going back to what you said about, you know, doing it in a, in a teaching atmosphere. Do you remember how you laid out the vision and what resonated with the team that was there? I think a lot of times people have visions that they want to communicate and struggle with getting that type of buy-in. Right. Well, I do think this is where, not to be corny, but I think this is where my academic background did come in a little handy, not in the sense of sort of jargon, but just in the idea that, you know, there are big ideas that animate a culture. And to me, that's been the sort of fundamentally interesting thing about Vanity Fair is that it is about big things that we live with. It's about the idea of celebrity, the idea of fame, the idea of hubris and vanity that can lift people up and also tear them down. And throughout its history, the magazine has chronicled those themes. And my feeling was that's still the vision, that that's what we want to do. We are thinking about celebrity and fame and aspiration. When you think about celebrity, you know, in the age of the Kardashian family, it's very different from what celebrity was in the 1980s. And I was interested in that arc. And I remain very interested in it because I think it's a lens through which a lot of us interpret the world. And fame and celebrity and aspiration, they all fundamentally have to do with values. What do we value? What do we think is important? What do we think is interesting? What do we think is worth looking at? What kind of pictures strike us? What kind of stories acquaint us with the heights of human achievement, but also the depths and the scandals and the potential that people have to behave badly? These are all things that kind of occupy our mindset at Vanity Fair. And I feel like that was all there. So in a way, it was about the cast of characters and that the, the people we're telling these stories through maybe are different, but the themes are the same. I think everything you just said, applying it to the brand and the audience are also probably questions that you as a new leader have to answer with an existing team and a new team potentially. I think a lot of people, especially newer managers, struggle with coming into a role having some sort of mandate for change. Any advice on how you think through, you know, do you try to build trust with the team that's there? Do you walk in with this new vision that's motivating, but also probably pretty frightening to, to people as well? How did you navigate that? You know, 
You have to stay focused on the fact that you have a job to do. You have to set people up to succeed, not just yourself, but everyone around you, everybody who's working on this thing that you're trying to create. And, you know, I, I think when you come in and you're new, you have to acknowledge that, like, not everybody's going to be on board with your vision. And that's got to be okay, because that's sort of the point. These are jobs, they have to do with sensibility. The, the job is about exercising your taste and your judgment. And so if I were advising someone in that kind of a position, you can't go in and expect everybody to be terribly excited or think that this is absolutely the right thing to do. It would be unrealistic. But you do need to create an environment where the people who are on board with your vision can start to execute it and start to help you execute it. I think just keeping that paramount, that sense of, well, I've been brought here in order to put this vision forward and make it work to the best of my ability. And that is the mission. And again, you know, you, you have to leave yourself space to evolve. It's a two-way street. You know, you come in and a team is learning about you and you're learning about them and there's a dialogue there. I, I have never found it useful as a leader to be 100% top down. And, and I had not worked at Vanity Fair before, so I had a lot to learn. You know, I was absorbing the archives. I was sort of coming to it as a reader. But there are traditions and habits that publications have that you have to sort of leave yourself time to get acquainted for. So I, I think it's sort of a, it becomes a fluid thing. But the idea is that you come in and I think just the most important thing is if you're confident in your vision, that's what you have to project and that's what you have to radiate. This next question <laughs> could apply to the last two months and it could also apply to the last 10 years, which is it's been a really interesting time in magazine publishing. Most recently, a number of publications recently announced they would no longer be running their print editions, including InStyle and Entertainment Weekly. Although this is the most recent update, there's kind of always this, you know, buzz in the background on what's going to happen to these print editions. How do you keep your team focused, knowing that to some degree we're all in the middle of, of a changing digital space? You put it well. On the one hand, I'm a realist. And I think if you work in media, that there's instability in the air, you are correct. And that just means you're doing your job because you, you are assessing the environment and you get it, you know. But it's, look, it's good to be at a brand that has a lot of vitality and that has a strong past and also a strong future. And I feel like that's how we've happily been able to position ourselves with a lot of new ventures that we're working on. We have a studio arm now and debuting some exciting stuff in the podcast space. On the one hand, it's a challenging time in me in certain regards. On the other hand, it's a time of kind of boundless opportunity because of all the platforms that we have at our disposal, which simply were not available to the editors of 30 years ago. So I feel grateful for that. And I think that for writers and editors who want to stretch out and expand their skills and expand their horizons, there's a lot to do. And so that is exciting to people and I think motivating to people. I know it's motivating to me to learn more about all these things that sort of come under the umbrella of Vanity Fair. Is there something that you're particularly excited about when it comes to the way Vanity Fair has been innovating beyond just print? Oh, yeah. So, I, yes. So I am. I'm very excited we're seeing a lot of growth in video, which is great. And 
I think, right for our title, which has a lot of earned cachet in Hollywood. But I, I think that where I feel blessed is that we get to do all of these things. So we get to do print magazines, which are very concrete, and they kind of act as calling cards. You can sort of represent what the publication is through an image, through the cover line, all the elements that make up a cover. But it's not as if the only place people see that is on newsstands. On the contrary, of course, where they see it is digitally and social media it travels so much farther than it used to. And so sometimes people talk about print like it's this archaic thing, it's this old thing. And no, it's not. Not if you're using it properly. Not if you're using it to make moving covers and create engagement on your social feeds and all of the things that we do that we've just done with our Hollywood issue. And that's what we aspire to. So I, to me, it's all part of the package. It's not like, oh, print is in the past and that's something to... It's No, it's all part of our identity. And the more that we maximize power on every platform specific to that platform, the more successful we are. Condé Nast has been in the spotlight, as have a, a lot of companies and corporations, about how it handles issues around race and diversity. As a leader, one of the leaders at, at the company who's actively tried to change how your publication spotlights those issues, how are you thinking through your role and the company's role in, in taking on those issues and creating a more equitable workplace? I can't speak for the company, but I can say that the job that I hold is in part a sensibility job. And to me, what that means is that I am responsible not just for how Vanity Fair presents itself outwardly to the world, but also for the kind of workplace culture that we develop and nurture with each other. And I will say the period of the pandemic has been very challenging on that front because it's hard, as I'm sure you know, to, to kind of actively cultivate workplace culture and values when you're not with each other. Well, everything, not, nothing about <laughs> the past few years has been easy. Right. And that, but that uh, feels like a particular <laughs> loss to me. But what I would say is that for me, that is a metric that I think is critical to our success. Because if we are not communicating well and being collegial and championing all kinds of diversity, helping each other to be heard in the way that my seminar professor was able to hear all of us, then we are not going to be able to put our best work out into the world. I think these things are related. And I think that it makes me very happy that more and more these issues are discussed among leaders within the industry, obviously in other industries as well, but in but sort of in my backyard when I talk to other magazine editors and leaders of publication, you know, th this is heavily on our minds. And it's not something that you ever get 100% right. You can't be perfect at it. And that was another lesson that I learned from teaching. You never leave a classroom and think, well, I nailed it. They learned every single thing. They're brilliant now. My work here is done. Like it, you don't have those days. More often you have a day where you leave and you're like, I could have said this better. I could have been clearer about this. I could have reached that student in the back row. I should have done it this way. And you're always pushing yourself to be better and be more human and, you know, communicate better and all of the things that we try to do as leaders too. But I do, I think that it's hugely important and it makes me glad that it is now a legitimate topic of conversation and something where we can acknowledge all of the work that we have to do. So a few quick questions while we wrap up. Who do you want on the cover who you haven't gotten on the cover yet? 
Well, I can't say because then all the other magazines will try to get that person. I know. Okay. (laughs) Who is the most interesting person you've interviewed? Or is there an interview that particularly stands out? Well, I interviewed President Obama in the Oval Office in 2012. And as far as interview venues go, that was pretty um, unmatchable. That's pretty good. Yeah. What are you excited for for Oscar season? Give us some things to look forward to. What are your picks? I am excited to, oh, you mean like movies? I was going to say, I'm excited to get dressed up. Oh, no, that's you. I was going to start with the movies because it felt more like thoughtful, but I am, I will say it like I'm really excited to see some fun and some fashion and people getting dressed up. I, I mean, I am so excited. We have events leading up to the Oscar party the whole week and it's a super busy time and and there's a lot going on and we're doing all this prep for all of our coverage and and the events too and i just feel like there's all this pent-up appetite i mean i have it and i think others do too just to be together in ways that are safe and responsible but also celebratory because it's just been a long time so we have a listener question from Addie. when you have a hard decision to make how do you make it what's your process like I like to get as much information and input as possible. So it's possible that this drives people nuts, but I I ask all around, I ask all around and then I sit with it. And so I can be sometimes, I would say, maybe not slow, but a deliberate decision maker. What I found in my career is that it's better to hear from everyone upfront than to have to go back afterward if you're making a decision that could impact a lot of people. So I, I try to do all my digging in advance. Finally, who is someone else we should have on the show? I'll tell you someone who I admire and is always of interest to me, and that's Sherilyn Eiffel. Oh, that's a great one. I feel like I always want to hear what she has to say about everything. So that's not, she seems like a good podcast guest to me. That was That is a great suggestion. Thank you so much. Have a great time going into the Oscars, and we appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for the great questions, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And we've also got another podcast, Pop Cultured with the Skim, where each week we're covering the pop culture moment everyone's talking about. New episodes drop every Tuesday. 